Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This week's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Sign up today and get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice. That's at Audible.com. With us today, Bill Crystal. And Bill, I've got to tell you, I'm kind of surprised. There are two articles in the Weekly Standard right now offering hope for the Republicans, hope for the GOP, both on Obamacare and on the image of the party as a whole. Can it be true? It can be true. It may, of course, turn out to be false hopes and uh, blighted hopes and, uh, and hopes that are dashed and disappointed, as sometimes happens in politics and in life. But no, look, Obamacare is the president's signature accomplishment. It is now being implemented, and it is going to be a, a pretty terrible disaster, I'm afraid. I mean, that's unfortunate for the country. The good news is it is not going to be implemented that fast, that Republicans in Congress can't slow it down, and then I think run to repeal it, well, run to further slow it down in, in 2014 at the congressional level, and run to repeal it in 2016. I don't think 2012 will turn out to have been the only presidential campaign where one had a chance to sort of litigate the case against Obamacare. Unfortunately, Mitt Romney didn't do that very much. He might have had a better outcome if he had made that more central to his candidacy. There were obvious reasons why he was hesitant to do that, but I do think Obamacare returns front and center as a huge political issue. And it's interesting that when confronted with this new study from actuarials that it's going to add about 30% to people's costs, 60% in California, the answer from uh, Health and Human Services uh, 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 head Sibelius was, well, yeah, of course it is, but don't worry. We've got, you know, we're going to shift the costs. We're going to supplement the costs. In other words, yes, we're raising the cost, but someone else will pay for it. And of course, Bill, every taxpayer in America knows that somewhere else translates into me. Right. I mean, we forget how much these domestic policies that go badly, and of course it's true of foreign policies, too, that aren't well managed, uh, how much they can backfire. I mean, someone compared Obamacare to Iraq. I, I think Iraq was a just war, so I don't like that comparison in that way, but it was mismanaged, and it obviously did huge damage to the Bush administration in its second term, in the first two years of its second term. So on that analogy, uh, a reelected George Bush, if we, if we were having this conversation on, what, March 29th, 2005, uh, things looked pretty good for Bush, and, you know, Iraq was a little worrisome, but it wasn't quite falling apart yet, and he might get Social Security accounts through Congress, and they were going to do immigration reform, and Katrina hadn't happened, and Harriet Myers hadn't happened. I don't think it's out of the question that the second term of the Obama administration plays out a little bit like the first two years, at least, of the second term of the Obama administration play out a little bit like the first two years uh, of the second term of the Bush administration, which is to say uh, politically very bad for, for Obama and for the Democrats. Then the question is, can the Republicans capitalize? Can they, uh, do they have the nerve, do they have the intelligence to not just sort of benefit from a reaction against President Obama, but to actually lay out their own governing agenda? And Yuval Levin writes in the Weekly Standard this week that he thinks it feels more like the late 70s than the late 80s, that, quote, both parties give the impression of having outlived their eras. How can the Republican Party revive itself and present itself for a new era? I mean, that was the great, you know, uh, I think falsehood in a way of all of us, and I probably, we probably published some things that participated in this, too, of 2012. It, we wanted to say Obama was like Carter and could become a failed one-term liberal president whose policies at home and abroad were failing. 
we sort of forgot that there was also the, this other guy, Ronald Reagan, who was the Republican <laughs> candidate in 1980, who not only was personally, of course, an attractive candidate and an impressive politician, but who had redefined the Republican Party in all kinds of new ways, controversial ways, that really made the Republican Party in 1980 not the Republican Party of 1976. When you go back and look at that, I think that's what Yuval is really alluding to, in part. I mean, that's just an astonishing change in only four years on a host of issues in terms of the even the kind of sociological composition of the party, Main Street, much more than Wall Street, a middle class, Reagan Democrats, not country club Republicans. Um, and that did not happen, of course, in 2012. And Mitt Romney almost went out of his way to run as a caricature of a uh, upper class country club Wall Street Republican. That remains the one of the great tasks over the next three, four years. Or, I mean, obviously, you can't just Xerox history. So, the, the kind of Reaganite transformation of the Republicans will look very different this time. It'll have different leaders. It'll have different uh, issue mixes, and then and, and different constituencies will rally to the Republicans. But you need to do that to revitalize a party that's lost a couple of times in a row. And the instant CNN MSNBC analysis is always a knee-jerk one. The first step is to completely uh, throw over the uh, Republican position on social issues particularly abortion and same-sex marriage. A lot happening this week. Is the Republican establishment rushing as a herd towards a new position on same-sex marriage? It's funny that you use the phrase rushing as a herd. I just looked up on my computer some months ago. I vaguely remembered an essay by the art critic, actually, Harold Rosenberg, from 50 years ago, uh, talking about intellectuals as a herd of independent minds. Uh, <laughs> has the Republican establishment ever looked more like a herd of, of you know, totally conformist and pathetically kind of running to catch up with the trends uh, of minds, or they don't even have minds, maybe, but just, you know, political uh, the beings trying to sort of, hey, I'm, 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 let me join this parade, you know, as if they're going to get much credit for, for joining it at this point, and as if they're just not going to earn the contempt of, of course, people who believe in defending traditional marriage, but also, I think, the contempt of a lot of people who are uncertain where they ultimately would come down on this, but don't really like seeing political leaders and alleged uh, intellectual leaders just kind of jumping on the train because it looks fashionable and because some poll shows that it's now 58% popular and five years ago it was only, you know, 43% popular. I mean, there's something pathetic about it. I've, I found it really distasteful. Uh, I mean, I myself am personally conservative, on, uh, socially conservative on, on the marriage issue, but even if you're not, I mean, just say what you believe and, and let the country decide. Um, I do think it's a very good case for Republicans to make against the courts weighing in and determining this for everyone. Um, but again, this this kind of pathetic attempt to, oh my God, uh, you know, the young people, especially are liberals, so let's just rush to to, 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 to right. cater to them as if they're going to respect you if you just embrace the views of some 26-year-old who doesn't know anything, honestly. I mean, you know, can't adults, can't adults say, you know what, young people are sometimes wrong. Young people had a lot of views in the late 70s, to get back to our earlier conversation, that they that, that were not right for the country. And it turned out, incidentally, they didn't agree with 10 years later, right? I mean, they were, the, they were all the governites, you know, and that wasn't where that generation was 15 years later. So people need to calm down and be serious and sober about important issues like marriage, I think. No, no, Bill. Everything you need to know about social science you learn from watching Friends and Dharma and Greg. Don't you know that? No, I know. And every, you know, ooh, the, gee, this TV show is popular, so let's just throw over thousands of years of history and what the great religions teach, and let's just embrace it because, hey, you don't want to be in the, on the other side from a, a TV show that has 20 million viewers. I mean, really, that's what a serious political party does. 
I'm sorry. You mentioned serious political party. I thought we were talking about the Republicans. I'm very confused in this conversation. So let me ask you, uh, Andrew Ferguson wrote this great piece of Weekly Standard earlier this week where he talked about the science or lack thereof on the consequences of same-sex marriage. Would it be a uh, workable approach for Republicans to stand up and say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we decided to redefine the family as two parents or one parent, a single mom, doesn't matter. Now we know that was a bad social science. We don't know what the future is for same-sex marriage, but let's at least talk about it from that uh, that perspective. Right, and let's let the public debate it, and let's begin to accumulate a little evidence of how it works in practice. And there's no, um, look, if this the one advantage of federalism is that people can do different things. Different states can come to different arrangements. And now, if one is the same sex, if you if you are a same sex couple that desperately wants to be married, you can go to a state that does uh, permit such marriage. And you know, so what? You're not even the the old argument that oh my God, these couples are miserable because they can't get a formal marriage ceremony, even though they can, of course, have any kind of informal, quote, marriage they want to have. It's a free country, you know, and legally they can sign contracts that pretty much put them on a par with with, with married couples, with just some minor exceptions. Anyway, now they can even solve that problem. So why every other state has to rush to do this? Why politicians have to rush to give us their unthought-through, fashionable opinions on it? I don't know, so that's what politicians do. I think there's a huge, I'd say two things, though, politically, I think the Republican elites are totally out of touch here with sentiment around the country, Republican and conservative sentiment around the country. They think it's just cost-free to rush into the embracing same-sex marriage. They think the evangelicals, the religious conservatives, are just traditional conservatives, are just going to go along because, you know, one party's going to promise us slightly lower marginal tax rates than the other. I do not think that's where a lot of these voters are. I think the Republican elites are crazy if they think they can take socially conservative voters uh, for granted, the Reagan Democrats, a lot of whom, incidentally, are a little more mixed on the economic issues than the elites are, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I, I think it's a huge problem. I think Mike Huckabee and Gary Bauer and people like that are right when they say, be careful what you're doing here. So just from a practical point of view, it is crazy for the Republican elites to be rushing off in this direction, for the Republican National Chairman, Ryan Priebus, to be saying, well, we're not going to sound like Old Testament heretics, uh, leaving aside the fact that he doesn't, I guess, know the meaning of the word heretic. And I suppose he meant to say Old Testament prophets or Old Testament, whatever, I don't know, Pharisees or something. Um, I don't know. You shouldn't really dump on the Old Testament in this week of Passover and Easter. Right. I could make that point. You know, I mean, so there's just something so tone deaf about these Republican elites. And I think politically, candidates who run against them in the next year, in 2014, uh, in Republican primaries could do very well, and then that would be a kind of Reaganite um, insurrection against a kind of Gerald Ford, Republican-type, Republican establishment. Uh, one last question for you, uh, Bill. The president has uh, stepped out on the issue of uh, guns this week. I know you were on uh, Fox News Channel talking about earlier this week, and you made an interesting point that it wasn't necessarily the politics of the moment that were lost. It is, in fact, the argument that's being lost. Well, that's a good instance, incidentally. These same Republican elites were busy saying, and they were a little more scared of the NRA than they are of the social conservatives, <laughs> so they didn't go quite as far. But in December, it was all, oh, my God, we have to look more reasonable. We can't just defend the... And then it turned out we had a long, had a long debate for three months. It's been a pretty substantive debate. I personally, I'm not a gun owner. I don't know that much about guns. I've learned a lot about what kinds of guns, how these gun control laws would or wouldn't work, and whether it makes sense to restrict certain kinds of guns or, or, or ammunition, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, 
what do they call it? I don't know what they're called. I know it's a little light on this, but you know, clips, right? I mean, and uh, it's been a pretty interesting discussion. And I think, honestly, the, the left, the Obama administration, has lost this one on the merits. And what's amazing about Obama, I mean, really, three months after Newtown, he's, instead of giving a serious speech, quoting constitutional lawyers about why this is an appropriate restriction on the Second Amendment, quoting social scientists on why this might work, I mean, presumably they do have some arguments on their side. He just stands up in front of a bunch of relatives of people who were killed in a terrible massacre, which, about which almost all these proposals would do nothing, incidentally, and thinks that this kind of emotional appeal is the way you pass legislation in the United States. Maybe it is sometimes, but is that what a president is supposed to do? It's really pathetic, I think. And I do think there's almost a reaction now against that on the part of the public, which is, you know, we're not that... Of course, we're emotional. Of course, we're all terribly moved by that Newtown massacre. But three months later, could we hear an argument from the president, not just an attempt to, 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 to pull on our heartstrings? Well, Bill, we wanted an argument. Unfortunately, sequesters cut the argument budget in half, and so the president was unable to make one. And we are out of time as well. Thanks so much, Bill Crystal, for joining us here. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. Be sure to check out theweeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. Also check out our offer from audible.com. Sign up today and get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice. I'm your host, Michael Graham.